Are you ready to take your mindset to an even higher level on and off the mat? Then you're ready for the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, where jiu-jitsu practitioners open their minds to new ideas and concepts about personal development, entrepreneurship, jiu-jitsu, and life. Our mission is to inspire, impact, and or improve your life in some way to support you during your consistent pursuit of becoming the best version of yourself personally and professionally. It's time to go beyond the mat with the host of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, Gustavo Dantas. Welcome to episode 129. I'm your host, Gustavo Dantas, and today my guest is Nick Hookstra. Nick is a purple belt under Trevor Rivers, which is one of my black belts. He have an affiliate school in Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas, and he's also a black belt in judo. He received his judo black belt in 2011 from former world champion Katsuhiko Kashiwazaki while attending the International Buddha University in Katsura, Japan. Nick is currently pursuing his PhD in special education at the University of Kansas. Due to his work, Nick has the opportunity to travel the world and always found a place to train in the country he was in and able to find a community he can thrive in and all that and many challenges along the way. Being visually impaired and it's, uh, we have the opportunity to connect last week in a seminar in Kansas. So that was awesome, Nick. Thank you for being in the show. No, thank you so much. It's a huge privilege to be here talking with you. Yeah, that was awesome. And when we have the, the seminar, and he was my Uki as well, when he helped me when I was showing the technique. So how was it, the experience of like uh, me sharing with the seminar with you and you actually being there, feeling the moves? How was it? It was fantastic. I, so being a, a blind uh, grappler, uh, judoka or grappler, uh, oftentimes I'll, I'll get techniques kind of secondhand. So, you know, like mm. the instructor will demonstrate and then uh, somebody else will show me. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes getting like a technique through the grapevine. And uh, we have some, we have some quality people uh, here in, here in Kansas at Rivers. So um, usually it's, it's not a problem at all, but uh, to get the opportunity to be your okay that day, like that's getting, getting the techniques firsthand, you know, straight from, straight from the instructor. So it was great. It was a lot of fun. And uh, we've been obviously reviewing everything this past week. So it's, it's been also a huge opportunity to to be able to take what you taught us and then I can kind of show that to other people who weren't there or you know who just want to review it. Cool. So we're going to talk a little bit of everything for the, the beginning of Nick's uh, martial arts experience and also this would be great for, for instructors, for coaches or maybe teammates, anyone that they have basically we're going to talk about not just being visually impaired but uh, disabilities in general so we'll have a lot of good insight and tips so first I know that you started with wrestling so how old were you when you started wrestling I was around let's see here I think around 12 years old when I started uh, wrestling uh, on a on a team you know growing up I always wrestled with my dad wrestled with my brother um, but then I uh, when I got to high school so around 12 13 years old I joined the wrestling team for my local high school up in Michigan and how old were you when you, you, you lost your vision a few years earlier? Yeah, I was eight years old when I lost my vision. So I lost, uh, yeah, I was eight years old. So in the U.S., it was um, between second and third grades of elementary school. Um, I had a type of brain tumor that uh, put pressure on the optic nerve. So the optic nerve got pinched, and uh, it was kind of slow 
slow process from like January of that year. I think it was 92 from like January to April. I slowly started losing vision. And then towards the end, it just got progressively faster. So how was for you being that young? How was for you emotionally to deal with that transition? You know, it was, I think if there is a good time in your life to have something like that happen, that's probably the best time it can, it can happen to you because you're, you're still growing. You've got a lot of changing still to come. I mean, it was difficult. There was definitely a lot of, a lot of things to, to learn. You know, I just, the, the example I always like to give is that uh, 92, the most important thing in my life was trying to beat, you know, Super Mario Brothers 3 on the original Nintendo. Like that was, you know, my age group, that was, that was what was cool. That's what everyone was trying to do. And then, you know, like priorities change so fast, whereas like suddenly it's like, okay, now I need to learn how to walk around with a cane. I need to learn how to read again because I had just finished learning how to read in, you know, wow. basic elementary school. Uh, so, you know, it was tough, but again, like it's also probably the best time that that could have happened. I had seven, eight years of my life where I could see, you know, that, that's huge experiences that I understand. You know, I know what a skyscraper looks like. You know, things in the environment that I had an understanding for um, had been kind of imprinted. And then I was still young enough where I could still adapt to a new way of life. And whose idea was to start wrestling in school? I think it was a little bit of, you know, partly my own and partly I think my, my parents' kind of encouragement as well. My parents were super supportive. Anything I wanted to try but um, really, it was a it was a combination of health. Um, I wasn't I wasn't in particularly good shape. I you know when I when I lost my sight, I had a lot of medications that I was on. I gained a lot of weight. So going into high school, I was quite uh, quite overweight. Um, didn't have like a huge community of friends, and I was just looking for something to do. You know, looking for a place kind of to fit in to to participate in in something uh, like a community, get some you know new friends. So it was something I was always interested in. And we had a, my high school had a great wrestling coach who really just said like, you know, come join wrestling. You know, we're gonna, we're gonna beat you up. We're gonna, but you're gonna be part of our, part of our team. And he was, he was a huge supporter. So there was a lot of, of positive uh, role models, so to speak for me to, uh, to follow wrestling. So how long were you able to wrestle for? Wrestled for four years of high school. So from my freshman to senior years. Beautiful. Now, and when was the the change to Japan? So you went to to teach English there, is that right? I did. I went to. I had my. Um, I went to uh, the University of Michigan for an undergraduate degree. Um, got a degree in actually psychology and Spanish of of all things. And I was living. In, I lived in Spain for a couple of years, uh, just teaching English there. And a friend in Spain said, "You know, there's this program in Japan to teach English." I think you'd like it. You're interested in martial arts. You know, why don't you go, you know, why don't you apply and, and give it a try? So I applied and I moved to Japan in 2008 uh, as part of what, what was called the Japanese Exchange and Teaching Program, the JET program. Okay. So how, and there you start Aikido, right? You got it first, you got introduced to Aikido? Uh, Aikido, I started actually when I was uh, at the University of Michigan, when I was still- Ah, uh, okay. Here in US so, still. Okay, got it. Yep. But I had been doing Aikido for a long time. And when I got to Japan, I was uh, talking to just a, a neighbor who was a fellow, um, a fellow American from uh, the Chicago area. And he said, well, you, you wrestled in high school. You know, have you ever thought to try judo? And I said, you know, no, I've never, never heard of it. Well, I'd heard of it, but I'd never had tried it. There was no judo uh, in my hometown growing up. So um, 
yeah, a neighbor just invited me along and he said, you know, we've got this, this instructor, he's going to be great. He'll, he'll love to have you in class. So he took, he took me along to a, I was living in a, a small town in Japan called um, Kita Kyushu. It's, a, it's in the Kyushu Island. It's kind of more towards the, the southern part of the, the mainland Japan. And uh, yeah, it was, it was like a, the local city dojo. And they just, you know, accepted me with open arms. It was cool. It was, you know, it was really my chance to connect with the Japanese community as opposed to just hanging out with other, you know, foreigners in the, in the country. So do you remember your day one, Jiro? Oh my goodness. I, I do remember very much towards the beginning, uh, especially the, the instructor he put me with. Um, so the instructor was uh, Haga-sensei, was the, was the name of the instructor at, at, the, uh, at Kirikishu Dojo. And yeah, he partnered me up with a local, uh, a local security guard, uh, someone who served as a security guard, just like, you know, working for businesses in the, com- in the com- uh, excuse me, in the, in the city. And he was a very short man, uh, maybe, oof, maybe five foot three or four. So, you know, I'm, I'm around six foot tall, so quite a bit taller than him. And he is just built like a tank. He's this, this short, very powerful man. And just, I remember being so impressed with how he could just move me so easily. Uh, and that was something really, that was my biggest takeaway from judo for my first like year of training judo is just how people can generate so much power through their turning of the hips and pushing and pulling still to this day when I, when I spar with, you know, smaller, yeah, oftentimes smaller individuals who just have that, that power. It's, it's impressive. So how long did it take it for you to feel like you said that the first year, you know, made an impact on you? How long did you feel that it, it, it took you to start feeling more comfortable on your feet and start to kind of like really understand the patterns, the, the grips? Yeah. I would say, you know, it probably took me a good six months to a year to get comfortable on my feet. Um, I was a lot more comfortable on the ground because of my wrestling background. Did he do uh, a little bit? Not as much, but did some ground? We did a bit of Nawaza. We did a little bit of ground fighting, and I was always much more comfortable when we did that. But uh, it took me, you know, it took probably six months to a year. It's standing jujitsu. Uh, standing judo is is much different than than wrestling. You know, it's a different stance. Uh, it's different. Yeah. Uh, different grips. So uh, it took a little bit to get used to it. But um, I was lucky because I had done Aikido prior to judo. I I knew how to fall down, and that made things a lot smoother the transition to judo because I think that's one of the barriers getting into judo is that um, break falls uh, hurt if you don't do them well. And I had already been break falling for you know six or seven years at that point. So it made the transition into judo a lot smoother. And you mentioned to me last week when we were talking about how you, you got to train to the female team with the female students. And so, uh, yeah, just, ex- just expand on that a, a little bit. Yeah. So this is like, this is when I really started to reflect on my own training and just like training in general. But um, I lived in Japan for a total of four years. Uh, For three years, I worked and studied. And then my fourth year, I applied to a full-time judo training uh, course. It's uh, the International Budo University. They're up in uh, Katsura, which is Chiba Prefecture. It's a little, if if I'm not getting my geography wrong, I think it's a bit southeast of Tokyo. And uh, yeah, so it's a course, uh, they have Japanese men from around the country who are doing their, their kind of undergraduate pr- um, program, they're looking to become 
police officers, firefighters, some of them are looking to be um, judo uh, coaches, uh, judo athletes, professionals. Um, it's a pretty prestigious program and the, the, the head of the program is uh, Kashi Bizaki sensei who is really well known in Japan, especially actually for his neiwaza, for his ground fighting, but also for his sacrifice throws. That's, that's how he became very famous. So um, I got uh, introduced to Kashibuzaki Sensei. I said, hey, I'm, I'm interested in this program. He, he brought me, what was really funny is he, um, he brought me to a, uh, to a dojo on a Saturday. This is, this is, you know, as I was applying to his program, I think he was testing me out. He brings me to, his, to this dojo on a Saturday and I was told it was just a class. Well, it turns out it was actually a tournament that he just dragged me along to. Um, a little kind of like an in-house tournament with uh, some of his, his other students that he was teaching. And he just kind of threw me in there. He's like, okay, you're, gonna, you're just going to compete today. And I was like, oh, okay. So I'd been doing judo for about three years at this time. And uh, the first match that I had, I think I foot swept a guy and, and won the match within maybe 10 seconds. It was something extremely fast. Um, and I was so nervous. I, don't even, I didn't even like, knew, know what I was doing. I just worked on instinct. And uh, after that, he just said, well, maybe I'll see you, you know, when the program begins. And uh, a couple, couple weeks later, I got accepted, um, went, to the, went to the university. And when I got there, um, what really uh, surprised me is that nobody wanted to train with me. So I'm a, I'm a blind, you know, uh, American coming to this Japanese university. And uh, for the first maybe month, I would just stand against the wall uh, during, uh, during, um, during training. So it was like four to seven every day. And uh, I would just be against the wall, you know, waiting for partners. Uh, what we would do is at the beginning of each round, kind of like everybody who was interested in sparring would kind of walk towards the center. This is a huge room. Like our, our dojo was enormous. Um, wish I could remember the exact dimensions, but we're talking maybe, you know, 150 meters uh, long, you know, pure, the, the entire floor is just tatami. It's just mats. And uh, we'd all walk out to the center and you'd kind of pick partners while well, nobody ever picked me. So I put up with this for a month and I finally spoke to Kashibazaki sensei and just said like, look, I'm not, no one's training with me here. They, you know, they, they either don't want to fight with me. They're either, they don't think I'm going to be good enough or they're afraid that I'll be too good and they don't want to be embarrassed. You know, so um, Kashibazaki said, go train with the women's team because the women's team, they're used to discrimination. Uh, they're used to being ignored. You know, they're not going to treat you any differently. They're gonna, they're gonna murder you. And uh, and it was true. I went to train with the women's team. Um, they didn't care, you know, who I was. They didn't care if I had a disability, if I was a man, if I was a woman. They came at me with everything they had, and they're very technical. So um, probably for three or four months, I trained primarily with the women's team, and that's probably where I learned real technique in judo. And later, I, I went and competed. Uh, with the men and I think one day I got I won five matches in a day and Kashiwazaki the, the next week gave me his black belt so a black belt with his name embroidered on it and uh he That's was awesome. so I think he was so happy to see he was super proud to see me number one beating the other men especially after training with the women's team because he he was the primary coach of the women's team at that time um there was other coaches that worked with the men's team and I think it was a little bit of a, a middle finger to the, to the other coaches. <laughs> so what is some of the things that you get from the Japanese culture that you took, you know, that really made an impact in your life that you still, like to this day, you think about things that, you know, you experienced in um, Japan? I think 
probably most of all is taking training seriously. Um, for me, uh, martial arts have, have never been, um, a, it's, it's not really a hobby. It's, it's part of my life. It's part of what I do, you know, almost every day of the week. Uh, and I think that that kind of dedication was really cultivated in Japan. Um, the Japanese take, take their training very seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, and also just a respect for the respect for the, the gym or the dojo, the club, whatever word you, you use to describe it. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of respect for, for that place, uh, for the environment of, of your training uh, area. Um, you know, we don't always, uh, in, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, depending on the club, you don't always necessarily bow when you get on and off the mat. And, and that, that's fine. It, different, different clubs have their different levels of, of um, formality. But just having that, that respect for keeping the place clean, keeping your clothing clean, the whole, the whole um, I guess, like uh, process around that, that level of respect for, for who you're training with and for the environment that you're training in. So now, when did you start focusing more on a ground, actually Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? You've been introduced to ground uh, to a certain degree with starting wrestling, kind of grappling on the, the ground, and then now it was in Judo. So when did you start, okay, this is actually a, a Jiu-Jitsu instructor, per se? So um, while, I was, while I was training uh, in, in Japan, uh, I was doing a, a, this, the course that I was doing was full-time Judo every day of the week. Um, and because, you know, on my day off, so like on Saturday afternoon, uh, I would, my, my day off would consist of, I would go into Tokyo and go to what they called the Neiwaza, uh, Neiwaza Kenkukai, which was the Neiwaza kind of drilling club. And it was this group of, group of individuals who just purely practiced uh, ground fighting. Um, they were mostly, they called it like, I mean, it was called judo. It was called judo Neiwaza. Um, but all they did was the ground fighting. There was no stand up. And I got super enthusiastic about it. And uh, when I came back to the U.S., I was competing uh, in judo, and I was winning a lot of matches on the ground. So um, I think when it really hit me that I was doing more ground fighting, somebody tried to, to do a shoulder throw, a, what they call seiyunagi in, in Japanese. Um, this kid tried to, tried to throw, his, uh, throw his arm up and catch me and, and shoulder throw me, and I just stepped around it, took him to the ground, and I choked him out with an Ezekiel. And at that point, I went, Ah, okay. This ground fighting seems to make a lot more sense mm -hmm. to me than not that not that judo doesn't make sense to me, but the ground fighting just clicked a little bit more. So I kind of saw that and looked into where I could start practicing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And uh, fortunately, where I was living at the time, I was I uh, when I came back from Japan, I was up in Michigan at the time, and I I did find that they started somewhat recently a Brazilian jiu-jitsu club. So I joined that and started practicing there and. Yeah, I haven't really, I've tried not to stop since then. Yeah, so how was that beginning in jiu-jitsu in the U.S.? Again, different, now different environment, different culture, oh. the whole thing. So how was the beginning of jiu-jitsu? Because at the same time, uh, it's going to link with what you're going to talk about with some tips right. to instructors and, and things sure. that people, even though they, of course, they're there to help you, but they don't know. Maybe they haven't helped someone with a... Uh, being visually impaired. So how was the beginning training uh, jiu-jitsu in the U.S.? You know, honestly, I think the, the place where I started, I couldn't have asked for a better place to start. It was a, a smaller club. Um, I, uh, where I'm from in Michigan, it's not a, it's not a big uh, area. Um, it's a, I'm from uh, the outskirts of a city called Grand Rapids. And where I was training, 
they had a diverse group. And I think that was what was really interesting for me is that they had um, people who were older with injuries and they had people that were younger and more athletic. And uh, it was a really interesting learning experience what it was to work with these different body types, um, especially because uh, I think jujitsu, uh, you're, you're able to continue training jujitsu uh, as your body changes, uh, even with injuries, more so maybe than with judo. Uh, with judo, I'd almost always competed with like the top athletic, you know, strong guys. When I started doing jujitsu, I realized like there's a lot of different body types and I'm still having, you know, at that time I was a baby blue belt maybe. And uh, I was having, you know, 60 year old guys choke me out. And it was like, wow, this is, this is crazy. Like, you know, it, it's really more about, uh, about your technique than it is about strength. Um, I'm going to be honest. I, th I think a lot of judo, unfortunately, has changed into a game of steroids and strength. Um, not everywhere, but uh, at least where I was training, you saw a lot of judo was just purely about who could who could lift more. Uh, lots of lots of bench presses, lots of squats, lots of lots of lots of time in the weight room, uh, and you could dominate people who had better technique than you. But uh, jujitsu, I found even uh, even if you were stronger than someone, you could get some some great grapplers who just their technique trumped your, your strength. I, I just loved it. And, uh, had a lot of good experiences with, that's when I started to, um, that was the first time in my life where people started to use me as the, uh, okay, as the demonstration kind of dummy. And, um, it was cool, but I also realized like in order to be a good, okay, you, you have to have a, a level of understanding. You have to know kind of like how you need to, to move in response based on what the person is demonstrating. Um, I had a couple instances where I felt dumb because I didn't know exactly what, how to move or whatever, but it was, it was good because the, the instructors there, they kind of looked at it and they thought, how could we, you know, make it so we don't have to teach Nick twice. Okay. Let's just demonstrate on him. And uh, it was good. I mean, there was, it was a great learning experience, I think both for me and for the instructors. Right on. So I have here the list you sent me some, let's talk about some of the tips. And this is for, again, I mentioned at the beginning, that could be for coaches, instructors, school owners, teammates, just try to bring some awareness to something that until it's presented to us, sometimes we, we, we're just not going to think about it. Right. And, and you, when we were talking last week, you mentioned a few things that I found fascinating, like, wow, I never thought about that. So that's the reason we're going to talk about it here. So. Uh, how do you want to do Nick? Do you want me to bring it up each one and then you comment on what do you, how sure. do you want to do it? Sure, so, no, that works fine. Yeah, the first one is said, make sure the club or gym has an open clear route for people to pass through when entering, leaving. This is important for everyone, but especially individuals with mobility or vision impairments. So um, as you mentioned, of course, it's something that if there's no one at the school that the practice you know some we're not going to think about it right 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 no and it's you know it's and it's more everything i write a list of 10 tips and, and we we talk about people with disabilities a lot of these apply for people with any you know just anyone but uh you know if you've got flip-flops that are just uh haphazardly like left around the floor anyone could trip over those but especially if you got have it. somebody who's got a little bit limited in, uh, mobility if you have somebody who's got a sight impairment um those like minor impediments could could suddenly become something you know slightly more more major but um it's just you know having a good clear space especially if you if you do end up having people with physical impairments um uh currently at our at our club here in lawrence we don't have anyone with um 
mobility impairments regarding walking. But uh, if you do, if you have somebody who comes in on a crutch or even in a wheelchair, you know, it's, it's important that there is a path to get in and out. It's just, it's just you know, the basics, step one. Well, the second one, I found it was awesome that you mentioned, you mentioned to me this last week about music, but it needs to be at a manageable level. So explain why the music is so important. Right. So, I mean, I, just like anybody else, I like to have some music going when I roll. It's great for our, uh, for our energy. It gets us motivated. But uh, I've trained in environments where the music has been so loud that it actually becomes distracting. And I know it's not, it's not only distracting for people you know, with visual impairments, but uh, for example, if I'm rolling and the music is so loud that I can't hear the other grapplers around me, it can, be, it can start to become dangerous because you know, even when I'm rolling, I'm listening for the people around me. I'm trying to, make, you know, keep aware that there's somebody else, uh, you know, a couple other grapplers, uh, you know, over behind me, in front of me, wherever it happens to be. Uh, if the music is so loud that I can't hear that, I start to get, I start to lose my sense of direction, and it can be a, it can be a little bit stressful. But uh, but having a little bit of music on, it's great. Um, we're, the way we have it set up right now, uh, the music comes from kind of the front of our of our club. It's also for me, it's great to orient myself. So after, after a match finishes, after we finish rolling, obviously we've, we've turned around however many times. Um, it immediately helps me focus on, okay, I still know where the front of the club is because that's where the music's coming from. Mm -hmm. That is awesome. Um, also, one that you already talked about, use the person with disability as your UK so it can show the, the technique. Um, yeah, and you mentioned it. Make sure to describe what you're doing while demonstrating in order for sure. this to, to be most effective. You need to make sure it's clear where you're starting. So then descriptions will make more sense. So can you expand a little bit on that? Of course, it, um, yes, and you mentioned being a partner and it would be yep. easier, but if it's in a situation that you, you're not the UK. Right, so like... I mean, it's great when somebody uses me as an UK, but honestly, that can't always happen because it, yeah. if we want an environment to be inclusive, like that also means you can't just always use the person with a disability as as the uh, as the UK. Um, but you know, when you are using somebody else, and if you have somebody uh, with a visual impairment or somebody uh, even with you know somebody somebody who's not wearing their glasses and might be at the back of the at the back of the room, you know, being really clear in how you're describing things is is super important and. I like to emphasize it's being really clear about where you're starting from, because if, if you're describing, you know, exactly how you're placing your arms and hands, but you didn't tell me that we're starting from half guard, then nothing's going to make sense. Um, it. So it's those little details. And um, it also prevents, you know, uh, sometimes people will try to uh, describe to me what's going on and uh, they do it out of a, out of a good place in their heart. Right. Because they're trying to, you know, okay, yeah, the instructor's doing this, but, the problem is then I can't hear what the instructor is saying and he might be pointing out something important or it might be distracting for other people. So if the instructor starts by really uh, describing well what they're doing, yeah, maybe I'll still need somebody to, to, to possibly fill in the gaps afterwards, but it just helps. Now we have here when teaching a person who's deaf or hard of hearing, make sure that they are placed somewhere where they can clearly see you, especially useful if they can read lips, make sure the face them whenever possible. 
Right. So it's just it's one of those things again. Um, in our club here, we I, we do have people who are who are hard of hearing, and uh, you know, it's just important that that those people maybe get um, uh, pride of place as far as making sure that they're in a position where they can see you, even if that means like uh, an upper belt has to like take a step back. But we really want to make sure that we're doing as much as we can for the people who need those those minor, you know, adaptations or uh, to meet, you know, meet them as, as best as we can. So if you have somebody who is deaf or hard of hearing, yeah, it's good that they are in a place where they can really clearly see um, if they can read lips, great, you know, they can see what you're saying. And if they can't read lips, um, then possibly we'll need some, uh, some explanation, maybe some more detailed explanation afterwards. But um, yeah, or if a person's hard of hearing, but can still hear a little, you know, keep them up to the front, make sure that they can take advantage of what hearing they have and uh, listen to the instructor. Okay, and that rolls into the number six, which goes along with it, just establishing some basic rules for communication, especially people with deaf or hard of hearing. So you, you mentioned some examples here, like they may not hear the beeper you know, at the end of the round. So two taps may indicate the match has ended. So if the individual makes a noise, it's understood to mean they tap. So establish your hand gestures as your own vocab in gym. So that's a, a good tip also. Right, and it's something that I've seen, I, I guess, you know, it happens, it's different from every, every club, um, but uh, clubs that do have students who are, who are completely deaf, oftentimes they invent their own vocabulary for, for use within that, for in that club, because, yeah. you know, we're not, we don't live in a society where everyone speaks sign language, but we can all make that effort to let's let's come up with a minimum vocabulary, even if it's gestures that we've invented. But it's just all about being, you know, having some clear communication, some clear um, standards for how we're going to indicate that, hey, the match has ended, the match has started, uh, I'm tapping, or you know, this is being said, time out, you know, all about establishing things up front. Now we have number seven, partner people up with trusted members of the club, especially if they are new. Sometimes there's a reluctance to train with a person with a disability, but this will disappear if the other members see them rolling with experienced members. It kind of goes back to your initial experience in Japan, right? Absolutely. With your experience, yeah. It goes back to my experience, and it's also something I've seen a lot of times when we have new women that start out at our club. Um, you know, oftentimes, especially, uh, like newer members might be nervous about approaching, uh, you know, if you if you've come in off the street, it's your first class. You might be nervous about approaching somebody with a brown belt. Um, part of our role, like as instructors, as senior students, is to look around and see, you know, who's training, who needs a partner. And in the case of of individuals with disabilities, oftentimes other members don't know how to interact with them, so they don't know, like, is this person capable of rolling? How do I have to, you know, interact with them? So if we establish a president where it's the the instructor rolls with them, if you, if the instructor you know partners them up with a with a purple belt, with a brown belt, with some trusted you know members of the dojo, with the of the club, it's going to start breaking down those barriers and and getting them right in in as part of that community. Number eight, it's always good to explain students first that you're going to touch and move their body, especially for new students who are not accustomed to it. Good point. Yep. Just a, you know, just super basic. Uh, my, my next point, I think we'll, we'll touch upon that a little bit more, but yeah, I mean, I think after we've been training for a while, we, we expect it, right? You, you, it's not a problem if the, you know, instructor comes over me and kicks my foot over a little bit or grabs my arm and moves it. 
because it, it's something that we know that's going to happen uh -huh. now. But especially if it's a new student, you know, those little things, um, it might not be something they're, they're accustomed to. Um, so it's, it's always good just to just to, to ease them into it, make sure everyone's comfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, look for signs of trauma or stress while rolling. We don't know what people have been through, especially people with disabilities, veterans, victims of abuse. So look for signs that people are getting frantic, uncomfortable, and et cetera, and know when to back off intensity a bit. People need to work through new experience sometimes. And again, this is a lot to do with new, new members of a club. And a lot of people with disabilities have experienced violence or have experienced um, you know, incidences of like, I've been mugged before. I know other people with disabilities who have had incidences where they've been you know, attacked or, or mistreated in some way. It, it could be the same. Um, oftentimes if you have, uh, well, not to generalize, but a lot of females begin jujitsu because of past experiences. So we have to be aware of those things and we have to know like, it's just a matter of being aware, right? You know, working with people, pick up on those signs that people are starting to get uh, a little bit stressed, a little bit, as I said, frantic, and, and back off a little bit. And those will be things that you work through little by little. But a lot of these tips refer specifically to newer people who are beginning. Right on. Last one, we work together to adapt, especially for grapplers with physical impairments. We start to develop techniques in new ways. It's a great opportunity for even a coach or experienced grappler to learn new ways of doing things. I agree 100%. Yeah. That's fun. It's, um, recently, we, I've been working with a couple of students who, um, who uh, have uh, uh, physical impairments with, uh, with either the right arm or the left arm. And just thinking through with them, like, how are we going to change this technique? How are we going to adapt this sweep? It's fun. It, it really starts to make you reflect on what's the important elements of, of a technique, you know? Where is it important to have weight distributed? Where is it important to generate movement? It's, I, I look at it as, as almost a, it's, an, it's a fun challenge. I enjoy it. And we've got some, we've got some pretty, uh, pretty impressive grapplers who uh, will, will roll with their, you know, with one arm or the other completely tucked away the entire match. And it's, it can be a challenge to, to fight with them. Now, uh, have, you had a, have you had a chance to train with other visually impaired practitioners? Um, not so much in jujitsu. In judo, yes, a number of times. And it's been a really good experience. I had a chance to uh, train a little bit with the Paralympic team from, I believe it was Venezuela. Yes. Cool. Um, and they were fantastic. This was uh, younger in my judo career. Um, they were just spectacular. Um, and then uh, I've competed in judo. I've competed against other blind individuals. Um, and uh, in jujitsu, I, I have not had an experience to roll with other visually impaired, or at least without, uh, with any other fully blind um, individuals as of yet. But I'm sure um, I will come across uh, other people as the more I uh, travel here in the US. Um, a lot of my training, as, as I think we kind of talked about at the beginning, a lot of my training has been in other countries where mm -hmm. Um, potentially fewer people with disabilities are, are training at this point. So um, now that I'm back here in the U.S., I think I will uh, start to come across more people with disabilities. So is there a community for visually impaired people in grappling, at least let's say jujitsu? Are you aware of any? Or I, You know, I think there are Facebook pages. I'm not extremely aware of them. Um, I know uh, just you know, by word of mouth, I know there's a really good, I believe he's a brown belt um, grappler uh, who is blind. Um, out west, I think. 
And, uh, but I'm not really sure. I know the deaf community has a Facebook page um, for deaf uh, BJJ grapplers. I'm not really sure if the blind community has a BJJ page. I, I should be aware of this and I'm unfortunately not. Um, it's something to look into, but- um, well, Maybe you can, all, you can always be the one to start though. Absolutely. <laughs> why not? Yeah. If, you know, we try to look for it, but there's none, why, you know, why not? You I know it. that there is starting to have in, uh, some terms, that's something that for people don't know, I promote tournaments soon. There's something that's been cooking in my mind for quite some time now um, about promoting a division or disability. Definitely the logistics are extremely challenging to be able to find proper matchups and stuff. So I can imagine like the logistics probably tough, but I know there's very few organizations. I know the in Abu Dhabi, the World Pro they starting to do one with a lot of different categories and yes. so which is awesome. Yep. And I believe it's, uh, uh, what's the name of the federal sport jiu-jitsu yes. federation or something? They have something going on too, yeah. right? They do. I was actually looking up their, uh, their rules the other day. It was, it was really interesting. They have three categories. They have categories for the deaf, um, okay. for physical impairments and for cognitive impairments. They don't have a special category for the visually impaired. I was very surprised to see that. They do have rules about how to begin a match um, with somebody who is blind or visually impaired regarding, you know, collar, sleeve, grip, or uh, both hands touching. And I guess you can decide mutually which, which setup you'll start a match with. Uh, it doesn't seem to be a, a hard and fast rule whether it has to be collar grip or just like hand, uh, hands touching as you would more in like a wrestling starting a match. But, um, but there wasn't a special category for the blind. I, I was very surprised to see that. But um. Yeah, no, we are starting to see more of those kind of categories. And, and what's nice is at least they had very clear, uh, a very clear document that detailed, like, this is how a match needs to begin. And that's good for um, especially referees and coaches to, to have that. So uh, to be familiar with that before, you know, you get to a tournament and all of a sudden you're, you're going like, oh, shoot, how do I deal with this person? Yeah, no, I'd love to uh, get more information about it because at some point I know that I'm going to end up uh, promoting something or, or mm -hmm. partner up with some organization. I know that at some point I'm going to do it, but I have, I really don't know anything about the visions or the logistics of it. Of Because uh, first of all, it would be definitely a challenging event to put, you know, mm -hmm. but I feel that, you know, their organization's doing. So I know that at some point, um, I'm going to do it. So what are some of the, yeah. So what are some of your, your goals, what you got in mind for your, your martial arts journey? So honestly, so I'm going to start uh, this year. I'm, I'm going to start competing in, in, uh, uh, BJJ in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. I've competed a ton in judo. Um, I'm to that point now where I want to start getting into the competitions with, uh, with Brazilian Jiu Jitsu as well. So I'm planning on competing in November. I'll be out at, um, worlds and, uh, worlds masters. And, uh, but apart from that, what I'm really interested in is very similar to what you're talking about. I would love to start doing more promotion of uh, the martial arts where, with um, people with different disabilities. Uh, it's yes. something, you know, my, my, uh, I'm studying special education right now. Uh, it's been something, um, I had a great opportunity last year to work on a project with UNESCO on promoting um, inclusive martial arts. Uh, it's one of those things, I think, you know, 10 years ago, I never thought that that was an area where there was really uh, work and and uh, a career. Now I'm starting to see. I, I really think there's a lot of potential to uh, to to continue promoting this, even even just as a, a part time thing. But um, I would I would really like to get into that more um, 
more seriously. I, I've seen a lot of benefits for myself. Um, wrestling, martial arts have been a, a, a huge source of self-esteem, a huge source of community. Um, and I think it's something, and it's also just, you know, it's healthy, right? It's, it's good to have a physical activity. Um, I don't know what the statistics are off the top of my head, but a lot of people with disabilities uh, end up being more overweight, being less active, and there's no reason that that should be the case. And you've got martial arts that can be pretty, pretty well open to anyone. So definitely want to get into more of, more of that sort of work. Yeah, we definitely uh, want to keep in touch with you for that too, you know, because it's something that I also want to get more involved. So maybe we can do some brainstorming together. So what do you think about some of the biggest lessons that you got for your life in not just martial arts in general, mm -hmm. but especially jujitsu. That's what you've been uh, past few years in your life. That's where you've been putting more focus that really reflects. And you see, as you mentioned, the, the confidence mm -hmm. in your self-esteem. I mean, it's an incredible tool. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, what are some of the biggest lessons that you take for your life from jujitsu? Yeah, I mean, one of the, I think one of the biggest things is, uh, you know, number one, you, you get into, you get into things, what you, what you put into them, right? Um, there's not, there's nothing better. Uh, there's, there's no better way to improve at anything in life than just putting time into it, taking things seriously. Um, it's been, and from that, you, you really start to see when you've been competing in, and when you've been training, especially with something that's difficult, like, like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, a lot of other problems uh, seem quite relative. You know, I've got a deadline at work. I've got to write a report. It looks, oftentimes to me, it starts to seem a lot easier after uh, someone has choked me or attempted to triangle me for five minutes of a, of a match. You know, mm -hmm. it really puts, <laughs> it starts to put the rest of life a little bit into perspective. Um, but one of the other big things is like, you know, just don't underestimate anyone. And, and I don't mean underestimate in the sense of I'm going to get in a fight with this person. Don't, under, don't underestimate anyone's capacity for what they can do. You know, I, sure. I've been underestimated at, underestimated at points. I'm sure I have done the same. I've underestimated other people. But um, you really, you don't know what a person's really capable of until you give them that opportunity to demonstrate it. And I really think in, in anything we do, we have to just walk into a situation believing that you know, whoever we meet, whoever we interact with, that they're capable of doing uh, anything. And you let them be the judge of, of, you know, where their limits are. You know, no one else is gonna, gonna put the limits on you. That's, that's for you to establish. Um, and I think, you know, jujitsu in particular, the martial arts in general have really taught me that. It's, you know, we're capable of doing whatever we put our mind to, whatever we really dedicate the time to. Beautiful. And one of the things that I asked you too when we were chatting last week was, because in jiu-jitsu, you need to be present when you're, when you're training, especially uh, as you're developing your, your technique. So right. now for you, it's like you need to be extra present as far as like being aware of like I'm about to bump someone, about someone's about to bump me, um, distance managing, uh, grips, all those things at the same time. So how is for you the worst? This word, because it, it really fasc fascinates me, the, the word presence, like, mm -hmm. like how present do you feel that you need to be when you're training? I think there are a couple levels of this. I think if you really want to, if you're really training for a, for a tournament, if you really want to just throw your entire brain and body into a, into a you know, 
preparing for a match, then maybe you need some space around you and you need to let yourself just fully get in. But on a daily basis, when we're training, you know, you've, you're focused on what you're doing, but you also have to kind of keep, you have to develop awareness, develop that presence, as you said. And that's, that's for everyone. And for me, it's, yeah. it's about listening to what's going on around me while I'm feeling what I'm doing. Um, you know, I'm not really using my ears while I'm rolling so much, uh, you know, for my jujitsu itself, but that's why my ears are then paying attention to our people stomping next to me, our people, do I hear people rolling across the mat, you know, one side or the other? That's kind of going back to what we were talking about music earlier. Mm-hmm. That's why I keep, you know, like to have the music a little bit lower to keep that presence. Um, I think it's something that you develop over time, right? It's it's not something that you just walk into a, to a situation immediately being able to do. You cultivate it over time. What I found is it really helps me in daily life as well. Um, when I'm walking around, I have to depend 100% on both like feeling the world through through my cane, through, you know, um, when I'm walking down the road, I'm using my cane to, to navigate what's in front of obstacles that might be in front of me, but I'm also listening to what's going on around me. I'm listening to people walking up behind me. Mm-hmm. And I think these, these all contribute to, to helping you be safer, both in and outside of the, of the, of the gym, of the club. Beautiful. Nick, man, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything that you'd like to add that maybe we haven't covered or you'd love to, to share with us from your experience? Anything, suggestions, anything that you haven't touched yet? You know what? The only thing I, we've, we've, I think we've, we've hit upon this, but it's just really good to, to uh, reiterate, to emphasize is that you know, if you are an instructor, if you are a coach, um, if, if, if a student walks in, who has a disability, you know, your first step is to not think about like, oh my God, how difficult is this gonna be? It's to take a step back, take a deep breath and say, okay, this is possible. We just need to work with them. Um, you need to, to talk with people. Uh, inclusion is not about, uh, inclusion, um, it's, not an, it's not a solo journey. It's not something that falls solely on the instructor or on the coach to create. Inclusion is a community activity, right? So it, that means you work with a community, you work with your students, uh, you work with your colleagues and, uh, and just like, you know, keep that in mind. Like it can be stressful when somebody new comes in and, and maybe you've never worked with somebody with a physical impairment or you've never worked with somebody with a visual impairment. Hey, it's totally possible. It's just a matter of working together with them. Don't, don't feel like it's totally your responsibility. Errors will be made, but uh, you know, there's something to be said for just open communication. And uh, you know, the more, the more inclusive uh, dojo we build, the more inclusive uh, gym we build, the more inclusive society we're going to build. It's going to benefit everyone in the end. Yeah, and I love what you said about mistakes will be made. Of course, we all uh, make mistakes, but you did mention last week too, like when you, I think when you start training that you hate your, your head. Uh, yes. And, and that was a jujitsu class was wrestling. That was, that was a jujitsu class. Yeah, no, it was an instructor. I think it was like my first or second class that I came up. Um, we were we were jogging uh, and I learned the hard way, like, okay, if we're going to run circles around the mat, I will stay on the inside of the person, not on the outside. Because the instructor, he turned to, to shout something to somebody across the room, like stopped paying attention for one second and ran me into a, into a wall that was kind of like a pillar that was sticking out. Uh. And uh you took me to the hospital. I got stitches. And one week later, I was back in the club, still stitches in my head. And this kid, the guy was like, oh, my God, you're Wolverine. Like, you're just, you're healing so fast and you're back. It's like, yeah, I'm not going to let it stop because, I mean, let's be honest. Like, 
I could have done the same thing to myself while walking down the road. And I have like, very you true. know, some, very someday true. somebody leaves a ladder leaning against the building and I hit my head on the ladder. Does that mean I'm never going to walk outside again? No, it just means, you know, going to take it, take it carefully, see how we change, uh, see how I can, you know, minimize that damage in the future. And that's a great attitude to have because maybe someone that is maybe intimidated to try martial art and they try that and that might be the excuse for them to like, oh, see, I shouldn't be doing this, you know, no, I better, better stop. So it depends on each one's attitude or the perspective of what happens. So what you, what you said is just, it's just perfectly said. It's not because I, I hit my head and then, you know, uh, ladder, I'm not going to walk anymore. So yes, it, it missed mistakes will happen for a split second you know so i bet that's something that he learned too and you learned too like i said okay i run from the inside part so it will it will happen Absolutely. so nick thank you so much man i really appreciate it and congratulations on all your your achievements and i i feel that you still have a lot to accomplish in your life and a, a lot to accomplish in the community too because i think you I believe you do have a voice, you know, you're really studying and specializing in this. And um, I have no doubt at some point, you're going to be leading uh, like a community in some way, you know, to help with the martial arts, with whatever, but like getting kids involved in sports or not in martial arts, of course, it's a, it's a great tool. So congratulations, man, and all your, your accomplishments. Oh, no, thank you. And thank you for your, your great, uh, Great attitude, and thanks for the invitation to come on here and talk about this. It's something I'm passionate about, and I, I love to find other people that are that are equally enthusiastic. Awesome. And all the listeners, you guys take care. Any questions, can always send me a message, info at the BJJMentalCoach.com, or you can go on my Instagram, Gustavo Dantas BJJ, and i see you all soon. Us. We're glad you were able to join us for this episode of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast. But the lesson doesn't end here. Watch the videos and download the audio of the 10 mental mistakes BJJ competitors make and how to avoid them for free when you subscribe to the BJJMentalCoach.com. Don't miss the chance to find out what might be holding you back from being your best self on and off the mat. That's the BJJMentalCoach.com.